This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. This time of the year, perhaps more than any other time, is a time of memories. We had Zichroinos in the Tfilos of Rosh Hashanah, we'll have Yizkar on Yom Purim, and we say Zichroinu L'chaim, remember. And for me personally, this Yomim Naram season is a time of very vivid mem- memories, a time when the floodgates of memories have opened wide. Tavshin Pe'alef was a year of great bracha, full of the chesed of Hashem, but it was also a very difficult year for our family. First, on the first day of Pesach, the morning after the Seder, my revered grandfather, Harab Mordechai Leib Gladstein, Zechazak Levracha, passed away in his 106th year. He was a Holocaust survivor, someone who knew Gerereba before the war, a Ben Bayis by Ramanachim Zemba. He was a survivor of Auschwitz. He saw Mengele. He saw Eichmann. He was literally put into the crematorium and yanked out. He survived the Rabbanus of America for over 70 years. We can aptly apply the phrase Tzadik Yisoyed Olam. And then 127 days later, on Chavzayin Av, my beloved grandfather, my mother's father, Rabbi Shimon Yeshua Hirschfang, who came from a very different background. He grew up in the Bronx in the 30s, during the Great Depression, in poverty. At the time, there were only 600,000 Jews. There were 600,000 Jews in the Bronx. Only 600 boys went to the yeshiva. The assimilation rate, the rate of hitbolelut, the rate of acculturation, was astronomical. And my grandfather overcame many challenges and hurdles to remain in Erle Chayid, was a tzaddik in his own right, one of the founders of Rabbi Hillel David Shul and Flatbush. And although he lost his hearing, and because of that, his sense of balance suffered, he was unsteady as he walked, but even in his old age, he trudged from Beis HaKnesses to Beis HaKnesses and Flatbush, collecting money for Aniyei Eretz Yisrael. Anyone who's ever heard me speak knows how often I spoke about my grandfathers and how dear they were to me. And I tell you, when my grandfathers were alive, it gave us a sense of security. They were our foundation. They were the bedrock of our existence. And truthfully, it made me feel like a kid. I have grandparents, Baruch Hashem, parents. And with the loss of grandparents, your security is shattered. You're a step closer to the Olam HaMS. The haunting words of the Yushalmi become even more meaningful. The Yushalmi Ma'idkatan Paragimel teaches us and compares a family to a pile of stones. A mound of stones. It seems pretty stable. But when one stone is moved, the whole pile seems very uneasy and unsteady. That's how we feel. And thinking about all the memories and what the loss my grandparents means to me, my grandfathers were from the most profound influences in my life, and the following Gemara in Masechta Tainis comes to mind. The Gemara Masechta Tainis on Dav Chav Gimel 
tells us the story of Chani Amagil who was once walking. He's walking on the road and he sees a guy planting a carob tree. Now why anybody would want to eat a carob? Why anybody would eat buxer? That's one of the great mysteries of life. And Choni says to the guy, you're planting a carob tree. How long will it take to produce fruits? Guy says it will take 70 years. Choni says, you're so sure you're going to live 70 years? And the man responds, That guy, meaning me, a world with a carob tree I found. The man said, I came into the world with a carob tree, and my ancestors didn't plant it for themselves. They planted it for me, for their children and grandchildren. The least that I can do is do the same for my descendants. This is the hargasha that I have. Whatever humble, meager hatzlacha that we have, whatever small madregos that we've been able to accomplish, it's only because we saw the greatness of our ancestors, their amuna, their tefila, their midais. I mean, my grandfather, Zechatzak Levracha, he knew his grandfather, who was a best friend of the Malbim, so I could look at my grandfather, and it took me back 160 years, eight generations. And the question is, are we prepared to have the same impact on our children and our grandchildren? One of my favorite all-time stories, and I say it all the time, and you may have heard it before, the Iker Halimur Hiachazara. It's a Rabbi Berylwine classic. He actually just reprinted it We'll give. Uh, we'll say it over B'shem Amroi in uh, in a book of his best stories. I highly recommend it. It's called Heads and Tails, and has a picture of a pretty peacock on the cover. And he tells over that when he was 11 years old, he was a Ben Yachid, 1946, and his father says, "Beryl, we're going to the airport." He says, "What's in the airport?" They're headed to Chicago Midway Airport. What's in the airport? A great tzaddik is coming. A great rabbi, Rabbi Isaac Halevi Herzog the chief rabbi of Palestine after World War II. And all the distinguished rabbanim are going to greet him and to escort him to the shul to speak. speak. Rav Herzog was a majestic personality and he alit from the plane wearing a shiny top hat, holding his cane in one hand and a Tanakh in the other. He had a very aristocratic demeanor. We all accompanied him to the shul and the show is filled to capacity, Rabbanim, all the Masifta Bachram, elementary school students, about 200 boys from Masifta and elementary school. And Rav Herzog gave a 45-minute drasha in Yiddish, and after that he turns to the Bachram in English. He had been a rabbi in Dublin, and he spoke with a slight Irish brogue. He said, I just returned from Rome, where I went to visit Pope Pius XII. And I had with me the names of 10,000 Jewish boys and girls, many whose parents had placed them with Catholic families and monasteries and Christian institutions, hoping to save them from the Nazis. Give me back our children, they're our children. The only reason we gave them to you is because we didn't think we, were, we would survive. But here we are, they're our children, you're kidnapping them. We only gave them to you because we didn't think we'd make it. But they're ours. Give them back. And the Pope flatly refused. He said, I can't even give back one child. The rule is once a child is baptized, 
We can never return him to another religion. All these children were baptized. I pleaded, but to no avail. Rav Herzog was so overcome with emotion, he put his head down on the lectern, and he wept bitterly. I was never so frightened in my life. Everyone in the show was silent. And then the rabbi defiantly raised his head, his face was red, and he looked like a lion. And he cried out to all the young men, standing there, there's nothing I could do for these 10,000 children, but I ask of you, what are you going to do for the children of Klal Yisrael? What are you going to do for the future of the Jewish people? Afterwards, we filed by him to shake his hand, to receive a bracha. He looked each one of us in the eye, and he repeated to each one of us, did you understand what I told you? Don't ever forget it. And Rabbi Wein writes that his entire life, Rav Herzog's words ring in his ears. Numerous times he's been discouraged, disheartened. But then he hears Rav Herzog crying out, What will you do for the future of the Jewish people? And that's what continues to inspire and to challenge him. And that's a question we all need to ask ourselves. What will you do for the future of the Jewish people? And for many of us, the most important contribution that we will make in this world is the influence we will have on our children and our grandchildren. Just to get a perspective of how powerful this influence is, how pro- profound it is, I want to share with you the words of the Sfarno. The greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu is well known. The Torah is made, B'chobesi Nemanhu. Moshe was the most faithful servant. The Torah says, V'leikam Navi Yisrael Kamoshe. He took us out of Mitzrayim. He went up to Har Sinai to bring us the Torah. He gave us the Mun. The Torah says, "Vayikam Navi BiYisrael Kemoisha." Torah says, "Vayish Moshe Anav Maid." Says Rabbeinu Yaina. Just like Moshe Rabbeinu excelled in the character trait of humility, he likewise similarly excelled in every other midah Taiva more than anybody else. The Medrash says, "Moshe Shakal Keneged Shishim Riba Shal Yisrael." Moshe's greatness was the equivalent of 600,000 Jews. How did he do it? What was his secret? Can we pinpoint, can we identify the shoyresh of the gedula of Moshe Rabbeinu? What was the nekuda that is most responsible for the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu? Here's another question to think about. Moshe's brother, Moshe's sister, no, not too shabby. I mean, that's one all-star cast family. Aaron Akoyin, Chazal say, was shakal, Kenegan Moshe Rabbeinu, Miriam Anavia sang the Shira. That's some family. How did the parents do it? Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. And the Sfarno reveals an amazing Chidosh. says, the Sfarno, Levi, Herech, Yomim, Al-Kulam. Levi outlived all of the Shvatim. Levi lived 137, Yosef only lived 110. Says the Svarno, because Levi Herachiyamim Akulam, Gidel es Bnei Banov, Lahavin Ulahiris, he was able to teach his grandchildren and produce Tamidei Chachamim. Says the Svarno, Vechain Kahas, likewise, Levi's son Kahas lived a long life. Ve Amram, Lamram lived a long life. And Ba'oifen, says the Svarno, Ba'oifen, Sheyatsu Mehem. Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam, in a manner that Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam were able to be produced. 
Remember, our Rosh Hashiva of Hanach Libowitz, pointed out that from this Sfarno we see how more than anything else in the lifetime of Moshe Rabbeinu, the primary Siba, the primary cause of the godless of Moshe Rabbeinu, his Anova, his humility, his Nevuah, and all his other unparalleled attributes, was because of the Kesher he had, the influence he had from the earlier Doiros, from his grandparents, from his great-grandparents, from his parents. In other words, where did Moshe come from? Where did Aaron come from? Where did Miriam come from? We don't believe it takes a village to produce a child. It takes a father, it takes a mother, it takes a grandmother, it takes a, grand, it takes a great-grandfather to produce a Moshe Rabbeinu. So you say, oh, maybe that was a one-time phenomenon. Of course, if you have a great-grandfather like Levi, a grandfather like Ahas, father like Amram, okay, you could produce a Moshe Rabbeinu, but this is not relevant in our times. This is some kind of archaic phenomenon. Comes the Svarno and Parshas Mishpatim on the Pasuk, Loisiya, Meshakhela, Va'akara, Be'artzecha, Esmispar, Yomecha, Amalei, says the Svarno. The Bracha, the Torah, vouches here is the bracha of Arichas Yomim. What's so good about Arichas Yomim? It says the Sferno, when a person has Arichas Yomim, he will be able to see his grandchildren and teach them and be Masake in future Doiros. says the Sferno, Ba'oifen she'kara be'inyan levi kahas va'amram in the manner, in the very same way that Kahas, Amram, and Levi were able to produce Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. So this is an, a bracha that's available in all generations. That's misbar yamecha amale. And if you were fortunate, fortunate enough to come into this world with a carob tree that was already placed in it, if you were fortunate enough to see parents and grandparents, and perhaps further, then you need to make sure to leave the world with a carob tree placed in it as well. You need to make sure that you provide future generations with the image and the proper surah of what an Eved Hashem is. And if you're already grandparents, maybe you thought these are the years to take it easy, to retire, to slow down. You think, I'm 60, 70, 80 years old, it's time to kick back, go down south, play golf, Relax a little bit. No, there's no slowing down. These are the most important years of life. Chazal say that when Moshe Rabbeinu stood before Paroi, he was 80 years old. Why do I need to know exactly how old Moshe was when he stood before Paroi? Is this such a momentous occasion that he's 80 years old? Ask of Zalman Saratsky, and the Torah doesn't just randomly give us dates. That Moshe was, Why is it saying Moshe was 80 years old? It says those Nayim Latayra. Because many people think when they turn 80, it's time to retire, it's time to kick back, it's time to relax. No, Moshe at age 80, he's just getting going. He took us out of Mitzrayim, he gave us the Torah, he led us in the Midbar, he brought us to, to the precipice of Eretz Yisrael. Says the Svarno, the, the years of being a grandparent are the most important years of life. This is the time to exert the strongest influence. This is the time you could produce a Moshe, an Aaron, and a Miriam. And if you're not up to that stage in life, now's the time to start preparing. So that when you do reach that stage, may HaKadosh Baruch Hu give us all that bracha, we are able to fulfill what perhaps will be our greatest role and tafkid ba'ilam hazeh.
Let's try to study and focus a little bit. What is the influence of a parent or a grandparent? Why is it so powerful? Obviously, there are many factors. I want to focus on one particular factor that I've paid special attention to as of late. I've noticed a phenomenon over the last couple of years of speaking. I can give a shear or a lecture on a certain subject, say for 45 minutes, an hour, and it could be about a certain topic, and sometimes the feedback that I get about the subject is completely unrelated to the subject matter. It's usually about something that I mentioned randomly, agavorcha, in the course of the subject. I'll give you an example. Two weeks ago, I spoke for a girls' seminary in Muncie. And I spoke about the, the subject of tshuva being comparable to tchias hamisim. And why we say umidoy malach in shayfaris. Now, uh, I'm speaking to a girls' seminary, and when you speak to an audience, you want to establish uh, some kind of connection with the audience. So I'm speaking to a seminary, I said, you know, by the way, last night I brought my daughter to the airport, to JFK, to go to seminary, and the Friday night before she went to seminary, it was was very hard for us, it was very emotional, I was weeping, I couldn't even make it through Kiddush. Okay, and then I started the shir, and at the end of the shir, one of the comments I got was, Rabbi, beautiful shir, beautiful lecture. But you know, I wish someone would have cried when I went to seminary. Now, that's a very telling comment in many ways. <laughs> but I was wondering, you know, <laughs> why would somebody comment on that? I only mentioned that randomly. Maybe I shouldn't even said it. It wasn't part of the shir. It was unrelated. Was my sheer so completely incomprehensible that that's the only thing the person got out of it? But that's precisely the point. In a certain respect, that's exactly what makes the most impact. You see, the part of the talk which is prepared may not have the same impact psychologically. Because that's all it is. It's a prepared talk or a rehearsed speech. And that doesn't have the same authenticity and genuineness of something that's mentioned, agavorcha, just as an aside, something that happened to be mentioned. But something that you say, agavorcha, that's not just words. That's you. And people are not influenced by what you say. They're influenced by who you are. So you could speak for an hour about tshuva, and it doesn't have the same effect on a person as something that is mentioned in passing, sort of in a moment of full disclosure. That is what the al teaches. You want to teach your children about the importance of Lashon Haras? So, okay, I'm going I'm to take out the Sefer Chafetz Chaim and I'm going to read, don't speak Lashon Haras, it's very bad, you could lose your... Yeah, it's going to have minimum, minimal influence. Because it's just words. And words have limited effect. Says the al you know how to influence your children. If what you're saying is on your heart, it's genuine, you really mean it, then you could influence your children. But if it's misafalachutz, when it's just words, it's just on your mouth, it will not penetrate the heart of your children. You better mean it. Otherwise, don't waste your words. Because they won't accomplish anything anyway. 
You want to influence your children? It has to be Allah Vavecha. Often it's the unprepared, unrehearsed, off-the-cuff remark that sometimes has the greatest impact. I remember uh, before one Yom Aram, my Zayda, Rabbi Shimon Hirschfang, he said to me, Dani, Davin Waldus Rosh Hashanah, Hashem listens to your tefillah. And I remember how that remark entered my soul. And I was learning in base Medrash, and I was learning about the Koyach HaTfilah, but it was that remark that affected me. It's interesting, interesting even in Halacha, there's a certain Ne'emonus, a certain credibility, which is lent to the unprepared, unrehearsed, off-the-cuff remark. This is called, Mesiach Lefitumai. You look in Evan Hoazar, Simon Yudzayin, Sif Yudalid, that a Gentile, that is Mesiach Lefitumai, normally we don't accept the testimony of an Oyvei Kachav Mazalais. But if he's Mesiach Lefitumai, you could have two Akum, and they could testify, and it's irrelevant. We don't accept it at all. But even one Akum, if in the course of conversation, he happens to say, you know, it's a shame what happened to Ploini, that he passed away, he was such a nice guy, you could take it to the bank, and a woman could remarry based on that off-the-cuff remark. Shulchanach adds that the situation has to be that he's not trying to testify, he's just casually in the course of conversation mentioning a fact, then you could believe it. The Beis Shmuel qualifies that anyone who comes to Bezin to testify, even if in the course of the testimony he happens to mention something, Agavurcha, you don't accept it. Furthermore, if you ask an Akum, and what happened to Ploini, and he says Ploini died, also you can't believe it. If you, let's say, two Yidin are having a conversation and the Akum says, what are you guys talking about? And they said, oh, we're talking about Ploini, we're talking about so-and-so. He died, isn't it? And the guy says, oh, it's a shame, the guy died. So, you can't believe him. Look in heaven as a Sif Yudalin in Simen Yudzayin. That if there's any amasla or any motive that the person may have had to make that statement, either self-promotion or whatever it may have been, we don't give credibility to Mesiach Lefitumai. Moreover, if the speaker was a soine, if he was an enemy of the one he spoke about, he has no nemanus. It has to be a comment that said completely randomly, the subject was not being brought up, without any suspicion of motive. But when all the conditions are met, it is the unrehearsed, unprepared, off-the-cuff remark that is given the most credibility in halacha. It's the most powerful and compelling statement. And this is one dimension of the influence of a parent and a grandparent. It's not the speech, it's not the classroom, the child hears from the parent casually what the parent really feels about Torah, about Rabbonim, about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, about mitzvahs, and almost on a daily basis the child picks up one Mesiach Lafitumai after another. And of course, as much as children are influenced by what we say, they're influenced by what we do. We know Yosef HaTzadik was faced with the most alluring temptation. He's a young, handsome man. 
And day after day, his master's wife is persuading him. She's relentless. She's wearing on him to the point where the Pasuk says, That finally the day came. And the Gemara in Saita says, Lamed Vavam that Yosef had finally given in. Shneem Ladvaravera Neskavnu. And Chazal described vividly how Yosef was about to commit the act, Ayin Shamba Gemara, the description of where Yosef was holding you, basically was about to commit the Avera, and at the very last moment, what stopped Yosef? Was it Yerashamayim? Was it Emuna? Was it Avas Hashem? No. Basa di Yuknoi Shalaviv Aloi Bechaloin. Yosef saw the image of his father. And Yosef musters the strength to overcome the challenge. That's what gave Yosef the strength to overcome. The Chazar teaching us that a child's future in large measure will be determined by the images and the behaviors that he saw from the parent. The more the parent serves as a personal example the greater will be the child's chance of success in this world. What a child sees in the four walls of its house will never leave him, either, either for good or for bad. Happened in the days of the great Goyen, the Nachal Eshkol, a child of one of the most prominent members of the community, was kidnapped and taken to a Christian monastery. And as much as the child, the parents and the Rabbanim of the city tried to somehow plead to get the child back there's nothing that they could do all their cries fell on deaf ears and they tried to take the case to court and they sued the monastery and they wouldn't even hear the case they said you have no evidence and years and years passed and all the while the boy's parents never ceased their efforts and finally they pled with a judge who they thought would be more sympathetic and the judge opened the case and he said look I understand what you're saying but who's to say you're telling the truth maybe the monastery is telling the truth they said this boy has been a Christian his whole life therefore the judge said I'm prepared to give you a one time chance you can have audience with the child for five minutes. If you succeed in removing him in those five minutes, he wants to come back with you, then that's a proof that it's your child. Otherwise, the case is closed and that's where the child will remain forever. And the parents were somewhat encouraged. Still, they had no idea how they're going to be successful in those five minutes. They knew their child had been indoctrinated and they knew their child had been brainwashed. How in the world are they going to remove this child? And they went to the Rav, the Nachal Eshkal, and the Nachal Eshkal tried to calm the parents, and he said he'll help them, he'll even go with them, and with the help of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, perhaps they will be successful. And the parents were even more encouraged, but when that fateful day came, they were shaking, walking into the monastery, their knees were buckling. And amazingly, the Nachal Eshkal was accompanying them, and he was wearing his kittel that he wore on Yom, wears on Yom Kippur and his white yarmulke. And they had just five minutes to persuade this child. What could they possibly tell the child in five minutes? And it was a heart-rending scene. On one side sat the parents, sat the rav, and on the other side sat the boy. The mother and father looked at the boy. They look at the rav, and the rav said no word. And the Rav began to hum 
the tune, the haunting tune, Kahaya Nidre Vesare Vikainame Chinuse. And the boy is sitting there, he's transfixed. He's like off in a trance. He's fixated on this niggin. And there are only two minutes left, and the rub continues. The parents' hearts freeze. The boy turns to, the rub turns to the boy. Do you want to come back with us and get oilam hazeh and oil or and oilam haba, or do you want to stay right here in the church? And as if suddenly waking from a dream. The boy jumps out of his chair. He falls into his parents' arms. He says, get me out of here. Get me out of here. Take me back to the shul where I heard this niggin. This is the responsibility of the parent to make sure that the child has in his mind's eye the images of Kedusha, of Tahara, of Tefillah, of Torah. This is what will influence the child. The Gemara tells us about the wicked King Menashe who introduced Avodah Zarah throughout the length and breadth of Eretz Yisrael. And when he was taken to be killed, suddenly, what prompted him? What inspired him to do tshuva? Menashe all of a sudden remembered a pasuk that his father had taught him in shul when he was a little boy. And this is what Menashe said. Oh, I remember the Tata taught me. And he remembered his father taught him when you're in distress, you could return in tshuva. That Hashem will not weaken from you. He's merciful. And Menashe did tshuva. What inspired Menashe to do tshuva? Yerushamayim emunano. One pasuk that his father taught him when he was a little boy. He always knew the pasuk. But we never know when these memories will resurface and influence a person. But the impressions made on a child's heart growing up in their parents' home, it's there, it's deep inside. It could resurface many years later. We don't know under what circumstances and under what conditions. It will ultimately influence the child, but we know it's there forever and ever. And our challenge as parents is to create those special memories and moments of dedication and Mesiras Nefesh. The way a parent says, it should be etched, it should be seared on the heart of a child. The way a parent makes a shechianu on a yamtif. What image will, will our children have of us? Oh, I remember, mommy. Yeah, she, she was always on the phone. Oh, I remember uh, my relative. He was always watching a big screen. We have the opportunity to make Kiddush memorable, Havdalah memorable, to make Berches HaMazoin memorable. These are the holy moments that accompany our child forever. About six years ago, 
I had the privilege to speak in a wonderful community down south in Memphis, Tennessee. Right off the Mississippi River, you could go to the Bass Pro Shop. You go up the tallest freestanding elevator in America, and from there you could see a nice chunk of the Mississippi River. And one of the highlights of my trip was meeting a Zokein, uh, a Yid who was in his 90s, mid-90s. His name was Yehoshua Kutner. And I was stunned to hear the name because my great-great-grandfather was a, was a student, was a Talmud of the great Pailer Shugain, Rabbi Shulami Kutna. And I believe somehow he was named after him. And he told me one of the most moving stories that I ever heard. He said he was born in 1920. His father came to America from Warsaw. His mother came from Galicia. During the Great Depression, he said his parents were so poor that during summer vacation he would get some ice cream, he would cover it with dry ice, and he would try to sell the ice cream. And there was a busy street right outside Lincoln Terrace Park. And he'd go out to where the trucks were stopped, waiting for the light, and go from one truck to another, selling ice cream. And on a good day, he could make as much as a dollar, which was like two weeks' salary back then but he brought every penny back to his mother because they could barely buy food for the family. He said, we were poor, but our Rabbeim in Yeshiva were even poorer. In 1930, he says, he was 10 years old, and the Rabbeim in Yeshiva's Chaim Berlin were starving. It was the Great Depression. People who owned big businesses, they stood on the corner selling apples. They were selling buttons, handkerchiefs, socks, just to buy some food. A quart of milk cost five cents. Loaf of bread cost two cents. Newspapers were a penny. And people couldn't even buy basic staples. One day they called me and my two brothers into the office. The Rabbim had gone on strike because people didn't pay tuition. Chaim Berlin had no money to pay them because who could pay for tuition? The total amount of money my parents owed for their three boys over the course of many months that we hadn't paid was $6. We were told, either come in tomorrow with $6 or don't come back. Many boys were sent home. They went to public school. And they were lost forever! We came home, our parents didn't know what to do. We had no silver candlesticks to sell. There was nothing in the house but junk. But my father owned one bad suit where the jacket actually matched the pants. Mom said, take this suit to the pawn shop. Maybe you could get some uh, money for it. Get $6 for the suit. My father went to the pawn shop. He explained the situation. The guy says, come on, this is not worth $6. Maybe $3.30 But my father pled and he begged. In the end, the guy gave him $6. And the next day we went back to yeshiva to learn. This was one of the most moving experiences in my life. Now my brother and I understood what Torah was to our family. Others were not as fortunate as we were. Had we even gone in a slightly different direction, my family would not be what it is today. My father never had money to buy his suit back. But you know what he got back instead? 
The Rebbein Shem gave him generations of B'nai Torah, Yerei Shamayim, all my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, are from Erel Chayidin because of that suit. Aaron HaKoyen wore eight begadim. Regular Kohanim wore four. My family too had big day kahuna. We sold them for six dollars. And it was the best six dollars we ever spent in our lives. The choices, the decisions we make today reverberate beyond today. They reverberate, reverberate beyond our lifetime. Decisions we make today will determine the fate and what our children will be like, our grandchildren and our future generations. And if we came into this world with a carob tree planted in it, if we, had been, if we have been the beneficiaries of the noble decisions and the mysterious nefesh of parents and grandparents, then we owe it to our children and grandchildren to plant a carob tree for them to make sure we can give them the best opportunity to reap the benefits of our Mesiras Nefesh. The Gemara tells us in the Rosh Hashanah, Melech Yoishev Akisei Din Mesifrei Chayim Mesifrei Mesim Suchim Lefanov That God sits on the throne of justice and the book of the living and the book of the dead are open. Why does God open the book of the dead on Rosh Hashanah? Why is God judging the Mesim on Rosh Hashanah? What did the Mesim do already? What could He have done? Why is the mace judge? What did he do? When he was six feet under, he, he elbowed the guy next to him. Hey, move over. It's getting a little cramped in here. Why, does it, why do the mace need to be judged every Rosh Hashanah? They were judged last Rosh Hashanah. They were judged when they died. Why do they have to be judged annually? And, but we say in the davening, that the Rebbein Shem judges all of mankind annually. Why is Rebbein Shem judging the Mesim? And the Mordechai writes, quoted by the Beis Yosef, that we give tzedakah on Yom Kippur because the Mesim need kapara. The Ramon Simetafreshud cites the Koboi that we light a yardside candle for the Mesim. Why? Says the Mishnah Bura, Timachaper for the Mason. What do the Mason need Kapara for? The Ramon Simtafresh Chafalev says that we say Yizkar for the Mason. Why do we say Yizkar? What do Mason need Kapara for? I mean, Mason, uh, what, they're speaking Lashon Hara? Uh, uh, the latest statistics that I read is that Mason have a very difficult time speaking Lashon Hara in the grave. In fact, the Ramah writes in the Darkei Moshe, why is it called Yom HaKippurim, plural? Because it's a day of kapara for the living and for the dead. What do the Mason need kapara for? Rabbi Shua Heller, a great Talmud of the Rabbi David Tevel, the Nachlas David, 1814 to 1880. He offers a haunting explanation. He says, here you have a good man. His whole life he lived with Yerushamayim. He davened Erlach. He came early to davening. He was an honest person. He was a tolerant person. He was Makabel Kaladim Besever Panam Yafais. He went up to Shamayim and they gave him a nice place in Ganeden, a corner property with nice landscaping. Next year Rosh Hashanah comes. They call him. They say, Rabid, 
You're moving. So I'm moving. Why am I moving? Yeah, you're getting a promotion. We get. We got you a nice spot in back Gan Eden. Back Gan Eden with Besser mention. Tell you the truth. What did I do? I haven't done anything here in Gan Eden that I should get a promotion. They said, actually, you're right. You didn't do much, but you had two sons. And this year they worked honestly because they learned from your example. So you're getting a promotion. And you know the guy who used to sit next to you in shul? He's coming early to davening because he learned from your example. So this is new income for you. Great, he said. The next year, they come to him and they say, uh, Rabbi Yid, you're moving. Don't worry, we take care of all the moving expenses and we'll, we'll move you in a cinch. Where am I going? You're going to the Hamptons of Gan Eden. The Hamptons of Gan Eden. Why? Say, well, you had an, another two grandchildren and they're B'nai Torah and your great-granddaughter, she's Medaktik B'tzniyos because of your example. He said, but I already collected dividends last year. No, this is a annual dividends. This is a new din. These are new reverberations of your actions. And this tzaddik is Yelchu Mechayel El He's uh, going from one madrega to the next. This is what the Gemara means. Sadikim ein lahem menucha And on the other hand, here's another guy. He used to come for uh, part of the davening. And you know, he wasn't careful about the way he spoke. And he wasn't careful about what he looked at or how he spent his free time. And he racked up quite a nice peckle of demerits. So he went up to Shamayim and they gave him his own shim and it was, whew, it was not pleasant. And for his khar, they gave him a one-bedroom apartment in the slums of Harlem in Gan Eden. And then comes the next Rosh Hashanah and they tell him, Pal, pack your bags. You're being evicted and there are these two scary malachim who's throwing him out of his apartment. So where am I going? You're going to a bench on, on Central Park. You see, you know, you used to only come to half of the davening. Half the davening you spent in your mita, and the other half you spent in shul. So your kids, they tried out both, and they enjoy the bed more they enjoy coming to shul. So they spend the whole davening in the bed. So therefore, it's all your fault. You're getting out of your apartment. You're going to have to be a homeless guy on the bench. And then the next Rosh Hashanah, they come to him, they pal, we're moving you. You're moving to the floor of the subway station because you have another few grandchildren. They became so disconnected and it was because of your example. Because a person's actions reverberate beyond one's lifetime. This says the Tadus Yahshua is what the Gemara means in Kedushan. Avera that is why the Gemara tells us that on Rosh Hashanah, not only are the Sifrei Chaim opened, but the Sifrei Mesim as well. And then in a footnote, Rabbi Shua Heller adds that he saw in a very precious Sefer of Rabbi Aviad Sar Shalom, who lived in the year 1729. By the way, Rabbi Aviad Sar Shalom was one of the G'daylam in the times of the Ramchal, one of the G'daylam who defended the Ramchal when the Ramchal had... Uh, a very big controversy. And uh, the Rabbi Aviyad Sar Shalom wrote a sefer called Emunas Chachomim. 
And uh, the Chida speaks about this Sefer, that it's a wondrous Sefer. And Munas Chacham, that our Rabbi Aviyad Sarshalom said, that in ten, 10 years he mastered all various disciplines and Chachmais, but Talmud Bavli is well beyond any of these Chachmais. And says the Tos Yeshua, anyone who wants to have Emuna in the Torah needs to get a hold of the Sefer Emunas Chachamim. And the, the Emunas Chachamim quotes from Moshe Zakuto and his parish on a Pasuk in Yermia. The Pasuk says, Godol ho'etzah v'rav ho'aliliyah asher inecha pekuchay sakol darchei b'nei adam l'aseis le'ish kedracha v'chafri ma'alalav. Literally the Pasuk is saying, that Hashem's manner of reward and punishment is inestimable. Because when He rewards someone, He scans and analyzes the repertoire, the ways of all of mankind to punish even one person. Now why does Hashem have to examine all of mankind just to punish one person or reward one person? It says in Moshe Zakuto, because a person's actions reverberate to one's family, to one's friends, to the ones that people sitting next to a person on their table in shul, to their neighborhood, to the whole world. So for Hashem to reward or punish someone, He has to examine the record of all of mankind. Says Rabbi Aviad Sar Shalom. Why is it that in Sefer Malachim, the Navi doesn't mention anything about the tshuva of Menashe. We know, we mentioned earlier in the Shir, Menashe did tshuva. Why is it not mentioned anywhere in Sefer Malachim? It's only mentioned in Divrei Hayamim. Why is it not mentioned in Malachim? Says Rabbi Aviyad Sar Shalom. Because Menashe was not only a chayte, he was machte as harabim. And v'chala machte as harabim, and must speak in the other last tshuva, that means his tshuva is not accepted. Because how incongruous it would be to allow the person back into Gan Eden, where all the people he influenced were in Gehenim. He influenced all of Klaiso to serve Avodah Zarah, and so long as they were Avodah Zarah, or children or grandchildren worshipping idols, Menashe's tshuva was not accepted, it was not valued. And even though he tried to influence them, says Rabbi Aviyad Sar Shalom, it wasn't enough. It's just by who the Hashem. He just said, it's not enough to say. But with the Chorban Beis HaMikdash, all the Avodah Zarah were murdered. And then they abolished the Yetzirah for Avodah Zarah. So once the repercussions of Menashe's being Mahdi Yetzirah ceased, only then was his truth accepted. And therefore in Divrei Hayomim that came after... Then and only then is the tshuva of Menashe recorded. How sweet, says the Todos Yeshua, this explanation of Rabbi Aviyad Sar Shalom is. And then the Todos Yeshua adds... Sefer Melachim was written by Yermia. In the times of Yermiyahu, Avodah was still extant, and therefore Yermia cannot record the tshuva of Menashe. But Tivrei Hayamim, the Gemara says in Baba Vasa, was written by Ezra. In the times of Ezra, they abolished the Yetzirah for Avodah And therefore Ezra was able to record the tshuva of Menashe and Sefer Divrei Hayamim. Says the Meshachachma, with this Yisoyed, we can understand the Gemara in Megillah, Daftaud Amad Beis. The Gemara says that when Rabbi Lezer would get to the following Pasuk, he cried, Vayoymer Shmuel El Shol, 
Lama here, Gaztani, Lahaloy, Soisi. Shmuel says to Shal, Why did you upset me to wake me up? You see, Shal Amach was apprehensive in his war against the Philistines. He needed reassurance. Shmuel had passed away. He couldn't ask Shmuel. He had already banished all the necromancers, all the diviners. Hashem wasn't answering him. He thought he had no choice but to summon Shmuel from the dead. So he called the last remaining diviner, a woman who raised up the spirit of Shmuel. And Shmuel was afraid. He thought he was being summoned to Rosh Hashanah, to Din. And the Gemara says that if Shmuel the Tzaddik was afraid of Rosh Hashanah, then Asal Achas Kama Vakama. And Shmuel says, you're going to bring me up, I'm going to bring Moshe Rabbeinu with me, and he'll testify that there's not one detail of Torah that I didn't observe. What exactly was Shmuel afraid of? What Avera could Shmuel have done? Shmuel had passed away. And why did he need to summon Moshe Rabbeinu? It says the Meshachachma, Shmuel was afraid because the Pasuk says, His children did not go in his ways. And if the parent is the cause of the child's defection, then the parent is accountable. So Shmuel was afraid that now after years and years have passed, he's being called out because of his children's waywardness. Now listen to this, says the Meshachachma. That if it's not the fault of the parent that the child veers off, is the parent liable? Originally it said in the Torah, Poiked avoin avois albanim, and vice versa. And the Medrash says, Moshe argued to Hashem that it's not right. Why should a parent be responsible? Every kid has free choice. So Hashem says, I'm asking to you. I'm a vatel dati. If it's not the parent's fault, the parent is not liable. And therefore I'm going to write in your Torah and Sefer Devarim, Lo yumsu avois albanim, uvanim lo yumsu alavois. So Shmuel summoned Moshe because Shmuel did everything in his capacity. Shmuel was Meichiach Klal Yisrael and certainly his children. And therefore he brought Moshe to defend him that when it's not a parent's fault, the parent is not liable. But a person's actions reverberate well beyond one's lifetime. They continue to produce peirois. U peiroi peiroi ad soif kal Mentioned my mother's father. He grew up at a time where assimilation affected a hamoinam of the Yidin of that area. But my grandfather, he had a Zayda. His name was Meshulam Faish. And he was a spirited Yid. And he, when he would sing Zmirois, he would sing Karibain, the roof would shake. And that Hislahatos entered my grandfather's soul. And it made him a faithful, loyal Jew. And you can imagine every Rosh Hashanah, they summoned Meshulam Faish, and they said, Revid, we're giving you a promotion this Rosh Hashanah. He said, for what? What did I do here in the Olam HaMS? He said, no. It's when you sang Karibain. You sang it with such devekus. Now you have a great, great grandson in Cedarhurst, Gladstein. He has boys. They daven in shul very nicely. That's your credits because of you. It's because of the zmirais, the dveikus that you had. And maybe if I have a little bit of your shamayim, 
Because I would go to my grandfather's Echetzag Lavracha on every Erev Yom Kippur. I don't know if I missed even one. And the Zayda would give me a bracha with bitter tears. They should have your Shamayim and Ava Satayra. And if we have any Zuchusim, I'm sure it's a big aliyah, Tar Zayda. Says Rabbi Yeshua Heller, for this, a person's heart should tremble. When he th- thinks, when he realizes, all the actions that a person did in their lifetime, they will outlive a person. What, where, what direction are your actions going in? If they were holy, they would produce beautiful fruits. But but if they were bitter like wormwood, you're going to have to pay the price over there for them. And for all the repercussions and all the reverberations, you man, while you're still alive, you need to see in the future. Because says Rabbi Shua Heller, who's going to drag you out of the grave? To travel the world, to go to all the people who are influenced negatively because of you, to scream at them. Don't pay attention to what I did. Ignore my life. Who's going to shake you off from the grave to be able to retrieve all the negative impacts you had? Says of Yeshua Heller. What you do in this world, it makes a difference. What you do today, it makes a difference. What you'll do tomorrow makes a difference. Life counts. Life's not a joke. Life is important. So what will you do for the future of the Jewish people? There's a lot you could do. How about start with the people sitting next to you in shul? Start with your neighbors. Start with your wife. Start with your children. Your actions reverberate beyond your lifetime. What you do, how you act, the decisions you make will make a difference forever and ever. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.